Hey everyone, and welcome to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. Thank you guys for listening, for coming back. If you tuned in to the first couple of episodes, uh, Nathan and I are both really, really excited to be getting this rolling, to be getting this started. And we have some cool plans, uh, hopefully for the future, to get some more stuff up on our social media and on our website. So if you want to see that and stay tuned to that, you can always follow us on Facebook or Instagram. We are at Creative Consumption Podcast, or we're also on Twitter at underscore create consume. And of course, you can always find us at the website, which is creativeconsumptionpodcast.com. Diving right in, today's interview is with Anton Voloshek. Anton is a set designer. Uh, he's worked either as the head designer or associate designer for some very, very serious theatrical institutions like the Williamstown Theater Festival, the Vineyard Theater, the Cherry Lane Theater. Anton has also worked for educational arts programs. Um, he is a great source for new music recommendations, and he's also currently studying to earn his MFA in scenic design at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Now, you're going to hear there's a whole portion of this interview where Anton talks about what he calls in the interview an untitled project. And one reason we're getting this interview out this week, uh, which is really exciting, is that that untitled project now has a title. It's called The New Phase Collective. And it's a project that Anton has been working on with a, a slew of really incredible theater makers. And you'll hear him talk about it in the interview. But they have their first performance going up. It's a virtual slash somewhat uh, in-person experience. I'll be honest, I haven't gotten a chance to see it myself. Um, I, I really wanted to go. They had a, a little preview thing going on. But unfortunately, that, that was last night and I wasn't available. But... The show itself is going to be going up this coming Friday, so Friday, August 7th, and they also will have performances on Saturday, August 8th. So please check that out. It sounds like Anton and the whole group of creators behind New Phase Collective have put such cool thought into what this project would be, uh, and you'll hear Anton talk about kind of the earlier inspirations and where it came from. Um, so I'm going to get out of the way and we'll get right to Anton. So thank you guys for listening and enjoy the interview. Anton, thank you so much for uh, for being with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Your reaction during that entire thing was wonderful to watch. <laughs> you like you were just trying to hold back so much. So much. I so was. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, so one of the first things I like to ask is... With all those things you do, right? And I know we there's a bunch of things, a bunch of credits. Um, when you first introduce yourself to somebody you're meeting for like the very first time, like what title do you lead with? Well, I think that in like theater circles, I I definitely lead with scenic designer. <laughs> like that's like who I am yeah. through and through. Uh, and then when you're like meeting some random Joe off the street or random Jane, like what 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 do you say then? I actually now that I think about it, I think that the like my profession defines a lot of who I am and so I think I'll lead with that too and when you say defines a lot of who you are is it that it then leads the conversation is that what you mean or is it that it defines how you see yourself I think it defines how I see myself doing theater and like being in theater I feel like it's like my essence <laughs> and so it's like a lot of my world revolves around being in theater and talking about theater and and, and talking about art and talking about culture and like that that seems like an important thing to to tell people or to like begin an engagement with someone. 
Um, so they know like where I come from and like who I am and like what I'm passionate about. Like if I meet like a scientist, I just want them to know that like I, I can't speak science. I like can't speak on the same level that they can. Uh, but I want to engage anyway. But that's kind of like yeah, where I am. Well, I'm curious because you were like, if it's a scientist, I definitely want him to know that I'm not a science guy. But do you feel limited by introducing yourself as a scenic designer? Does that feel like a limitation when you're introducing yourself to people? I don't see it as a as a limitation now. I I, I see it as like ways in which I can like begin a conversation or begin a dialogue about things that are periphery to theater too. A show that I just saw about this, da 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 da. A show that I just saw about this, da 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 da. Or this like theater piece that I just saw reminding me of the show that I just saw that was about this. Like there's like lots of things that I can like talk about and engage with someone um, beyond like the practice of making theater and like set design per yeah. se. But it's definitely like a, a, a jumping off point for conversation for me. And like as a way to engage with, uh, like I just said, like non-theatrical things too. There's ways to like relate the relate theater to something else and then bring it back. And I don't know, just like weave your way through the conversation. Do people usually follow up with like, oh cool, what is that what is that like? Or like how do people usually respond when you introduce yourself like hundred percent, yes. <laughs> yeah. They're like, um what like if it's like someone who like truly knows nothing about theater, they're like, what what is that? And then I have to like be like, oh like it's the sets that like are on stage. Like when you go see the musical, it's like the like it's the scenery that that the actor that surround the actors. And I try to like use language to like describe it in like a, uh, a more colloquial way. But I I, <laughs> I feel like I, there isn't one. Like I keep saying like scenery and set and like I I'm, I'm just I'm just, I always search for a word that describes exactly what it is that is like on the stage that makes it a set that would someone would like recognize as a set. Because people like always like see it there, like they recognize that there's scenery on stage, but usually people are like focusing on the performers and the the action on stage and not necessarily the surround, which is what I always look at. <laughs> which I think is so cool. And you and I have talked about this a lot before, but I, I mean, what I hear you saying is people usually when they're watching a show, look at the people on stage, right? Instead of the things around the people on stage. And so I'm wondering when you were growing up, when you were watching theater, was that a unique perspective you had when you were watching shows that you noticed, oh, my friends are focusing on the performers and I'm focusing on the sets. Basically, what I'm wondering is what what were you seeing early on? Like, what are the things you're watching or the shows you saw? And when did you notice that the things you were paying attention to weren't the performers, but it was actually the things around the performers? The first two like big shows that I remember seeing when I was a child were like Lion King and Wicked, which both have like <laughs> massive scenery and like huge sets and like they're very uh, well designed and well thought through and they all have like an aesthetic. They both have an aesthetic to them. Uh, and so I'll never forget like Pride Rock, like in the middle of the stage with all the puppets around. And it's like, perhaps maybe that's why like I was so focused on design because I think that the Lion King through design like personifies the characters and like makes these like animalistic characters real and so it was like through that visual language that they were able to help the actors tell the story and then also like throughout high school and middle school I was like into visual arts a lot and so I think that like going to the theater was a feast for my eyes and so that's like how I got into it was through the visual aspect of it through the 
looking at the whole stage picture. And obviously I did focus on the actors and I like love the stories, but I think that it was about the impact that the design choice had on how I felt in the moment. Were there other design elements like um, like lighting or costuming that you dabbled in or you thought could also be interesting or was it always set design? When I started doing like actual theater in high school, it was like just set design because like the, they would always bring in like a lighting designer and the costume people were like totally separate from the people in the scene shop. And so I think that it was just set design. I mean, I like, I've thought about lighting and I've like thought about costume, but I've never actually like designed it or like implemented anything into an actual show. And was uh, was there like somebody, because it sounds like in high school, like I, I don't know many people who in high school are set designing and things like that. I feel like it's one of those things that just kind of happens. Like everyone comes together at like, 12 p.m. one night and they're just like oh we're gonna well, we got to get the set up somehow right and like magically in the morning it's somehow there right as opposed to having an intentional person like design and work through it I feel like that that's pretty unique was there somebody at your high school who encouraged you to follow through with it yeah they're the very first show I worked on I think they had brought in a, a set designer from Michigan State University because that, that's in the same town as where I grew up um I went to high school and they like built it. They like brought in like a model, and like we all looked at it and were like ooh and eyeing at this thing. And the set was really cool. But then I don't know budget cuts or something. I don't know what happened. But then they didn't like. They never came back. And so um, they brought back like an alumni the next show. And then like the next show after that was another alumni. And at that point, one of my friends Jake and I were both like really interested in, in like designing the set and like were really engaged with like the technical i think we call it tech theater tech club i don't know what we called it but it was like something like that um and so we we approached like the technical director and the theater director of the program and was like can we design hairspray which was like the next musical and they were like sure i guess with some guidance <laughs> and, then, and so we did and um we like i remember like trying to learn SketchUp, and it was like the most <laughs> <laughs> low by low budget ratchet designing ever but like the idea came across and I remember I, I had gotten like this um my parents got it for me I don't remember but like a theater design a set design uh, a how-to book kind of thing and that was the first time I'd ever heard of a proscenium and like a false proscenium and so I was like wow we're gonna design a false proscenium for this for hairspray it's gonna be like this massive tv and it's gonna be like this weird like it was like blue and like wasn't symmetrical, wasn't geometrically correct at all. It was, you couldn't really tell the TV, but whatever. <laughs> um, and it was massive. Like we definitely did not have the capabilities to build <laughs> a false proscenium, but somehow they made it happen and putting it up was like absolutely terrifying. But it was kind of like nice that they like trusted, trusted us, quote unquote, to, to like design this thing. And, and what we like had designed and what I put in SketchUp was kind of what came up out on stage. So, um, and then we did, and then I did Sweet Charity in the fall. And then I did The World Goes Round that next spring. And that was like the final show I designed. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was fun to like experiment and like be given the space to experiment. That's really cool. That's really cool. And then outside of theater, because it sounds like you you got the opportunities to do a lot of theater, which is awesome, right? And I think that there, like a lot of people kind of pursue that from a performing standpoint. But like I said, I don't know if a lot of people take the initiative to do that from a design perspective. Um, and the people who do, I think, are really driven like you are. Are there other things like that you're 
watching outside of theater, like, I don't know if it's shows or books that you read that also had a big influence on you about kind of the way either you approach design or just like kind of the way you went towards becoming a designer? We'll take it back to high school again. <laughs> Let's do it. Love high school. <laughs> but in uh, uh, when I was in high school, I was in this like advanced English program my freshman and sophomore year. And so I was taking like this, I don't know, gifted and talented thing through at MSU. And then like I took AP English junior year and then I took some college courses senior year. And I think that like the English language and reading and books also have a massive influence on me. Um, and so one of the reasons that uh, the like theater director pushed me towards um, doing tech theater was that it like combined the like visual arts that I was interested in, like all the art classes that I had taken thus far, as well as like reading and interpreting texts and like engaging with the language. Um, and so she thought it would be like a perfect melding of the two. And it truly was, and it still is to this day. And I think that's why it brings me so much joy is that I'm able to like sit down and read something and think about it and like really um, dig into the text, into the characters, into the setting, into, into like every aspect of the world. And um, I don't know, to, like do close readings and use all the skills that I learned then um, to like be able to truly understand like what the text is and like what my interpretation of the text is. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to tell it anyway. But there was, um, I'll never forget like in that gifted and talented course thing, um, we, we talked a lot about like intentional fallacy. Like if the author, if the author's intent should um, influence the reading of the text, like, like should we um, as readers in the 21st century, look back at something that was written hundreds of years ago and try to think of what the author was thinking. And I always like disagree with that. I was always like the text is the text and like perhaps it has a historical context, um, but I don't think we can ever know what the author was thinking. I don't think we can ever know necessarily what the author intention was behind writing that specific sentence or that, that stands of poetry. And so I think I bring that a bit into like how I design theater too and how I think about a, t a play in, in a text is that like, even if the playwright is alive and I'm sure they did have intentions, I think I divorced the two a bit. And I think that like brings a little more, it brings more of my voice into the text and it brings more of the collaborators' voices into the text. And like, I think that that's what makes each iteration of the show unique and different and exciting. And I'm always like looking for the thing that like perhaps the author didn't intend. There wasn't an intention there, but that is still there. And perhaps is even more revealed because of where we are in the world right now or things like that. Um, so all that to say that I think that like English and reading and like in reading books and things have really has really affected how I um, engage with theater and how I engage with the world. After you had that connection made for you between like loving books, but also loving design and seeing how you could put those two things together, were you able to look at books in the same way? Like, could you still read for pleasure, but also then add to that reading for the intention of design? Or did it become more difficult to read just because you wanted to and not be thinking about design while you read? I don't think I ever read plays for fun. Like that is definitely not something that I, I read novels for fun, but I don't, I definitely think that I, I think of reading plays as more work and that I have to, if I am going to read a play, then I need to like sit down with it and I need to like read it. And I need to read it so that I can be in the world with the characters and be in the text and be imagining what it could be and like all that kind of stuff. 
Whereas I feel like with novels, I can separate it a bit. And there's a lot more like descriptors in novels. So like you can really, the, the, the author usually paints a really lovely picture for you <laughs> that you can kind of like immediately conjure in your head. Whereas with plays, there's like a, there's like a slight stage direction. And so like the, it's all entirely up to the reader and the creators of like the theater piece to um, create the world. I used to love reading fantasy. And I've definitely stopped that a little bit now. Uh, but that was like my big thing when I was a child, I would read fantasy books. But now I read more like, just like contemporary fiction or like memoirs or things like that. What's something that you've been reading lately? Well, the one that I read at home was this book called Conversations with Anne, which was a collection of interviews that Anne Bogart did with all of these uh, theater makers from like, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, when Off-Broadway was starting to become a thing, downtown theater was bigger, um, regional theaters were starting to be created. And so she does 24 interviews from like post 9-11, 2001, until like 2005, I think. So it's also like the Bush um, presidency too. And so there's a lot of, I wouldn't normally read those things, but it just, it felt very resonant with like the time that we're in right now and the kind of, changes that are probably going to be happening in the theater industry and the changes that are going to be happening because of coronavirus, because of Black Lives Matter, because of uh, the Trump presidency, like a whole slew of things. And they all seemed really, the interviews seemed uh, very resonant with the time that we're in right now. And then I read Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, which was also very good. If you haven't read Water Dancer, which is his fiction novel that he wrote? No, I haven't. I'll have to check it out, though. It's really beautiful. Um, and it's actually really cool to see some of the ways he brings in similar ideas. Obviously, he's he's bringing in a lot of um, concepts just in a very different con- context than it was in Between mm-hmm. the World and Me. But it's, it's interesting because even some of just like the sentences he writes in The Water Dancer, I'm like, oh, there's an idea that like was definitely expressed in some way in Between the World and Me. But cool. Thank you for the recommendations. I'm definitely going to put uh, links to those or make sure that people are can see those later. Are there other ways that outside of books you disconnect from work? Because it sounds like plays keep you tied into work. Seeing theater probably keeps you thinking about your work. But what are the ways that then, if you wanted to disconnect from work, what do you do for that? I think that like, I think television is the thing that is like the, the the entertainment that I consume that is not that does not make me think about work because with films especially since um, starting at NYU we have a production design uh, concentration and so the scenic design and the production design kind of run side by side and so there's a lot of overlap between the two like the production designers take scenic design first year and then the scenic designers can take production design in the, in the following two years and so like there's just a lot of overlap. And so there's quite a bit of curriculum surrounding films and movies and analyzing the shot and the um, how it's framed and the color palette and like all the decisions that go into the cinematography for films. And I think there's a little bit less of that in TV um, just because there's so much more content in a TV show and like an arc of a series. I'm not saying that it's not there, but that, in our program and in thinking about um, filmed media, I think of movies as more, as, as being something able to like chew on immediately and think about and analyze and 
um, engage with. Whereas with TV shows, I feel like I can disengage a bit and just like focus on the, the characters or like, even if it's like a, a cooking show or something, you know, like there's no like cinematography that I have to worry about or like deeper message to why they're zooming on the garlic, you know, like there's not, there's none of that. Which Those is- tables on the Great British Bake Off are too close <laughs> together. <laughs> exactly. And so I find that TV really um, uh, like lets me disconnect a bit from my analytical brain and my constantly going brain. Great British Bake Off is a great show. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> well, we will also link to that. Another <laughs> great, great recommendation. Hey, everyone. I'm just taking a brief break from the episode to mention those show note resources that I talked about in the last couple of episodes as well. We've still got them in there and we've added a couple and Anton has actually recommended a few that he really wants to let people know about. So you'll find those in the show notes as well. One that I'm going to highlight just because I had not read it before and I had not seen it before is a speech that Anton mentions called The Ground on Which I Stand. It's an August Wilson speech that he gave back in the 1990s about um, black artists in theater and the conversations that were being had then and which are really being had in a serious way now as well. Um, so it was a beautiful speech, really powerful to read, and I definitely encourage you guys to take a look at that, in addition to the other resources about um, equity in the arts, anti-racist resources that are listed in the show. So thank you guys, and we'll get back to the interview. When it comes to like going back and forth, right? So like you've got your stuff that you like, the reading the plays, seeing theater, and then things like Great British Bake Off, always good but other ways that you can disconnect from that. Is it a feeling that you get when you're like, okay, now it's time to go back to work. Do you try to be more deliberate? Are you intentional with a structure around that? What is the interplay between turning the brain off and letting it rest for a little bit and then going back to your work? That's hard. It's not a hard question. It's a hard thing for me to do is to turn off my brain. I don't think my brain is ever off. I don't think that my brain is ever not thinking about something whether it be a project that i'm working on or a show that i just saw or um what i need to do next in my life that's just like how my brain works and so i'm trying to like think of an example well right now i'm like doing this um so after reading that ann bogart book and after th- after like feeling like i wasn't able to really do anything in michigan and like not be engaged in any sort of like artistic practice in michigan i was like ready to get into something and so and there's no theater happening right now there's like no professional off-Broadway, regional, Broadway, anything theater happening. And so I was like, how can I bring together like some friends who want to make something? And so I did. And I like emailed a whole bunch of people and like friends that from NYU and some like random people from Williamstown and like things like that, um, people like that, who I wanted to bring together to create some sort of like theater piece that reacted to coronavirus and reacted to Black Lives Matter and like was trying to be radically inclusive and wasn't thinking about disabled people and like just like as a whole and so ever since like sending that email that's like all I've thought about (laughs) like every single day and even when I'm like watching a cooking show it's like slightly at the back of my mind of like yes I'm trying to disengage but also like what is it what are the next steps that we take in the in the project what do I have to like do next like what do I need to do tomorrow to make sure that I meet the deadline for Monday and like it's just like my brain like never stops 
Um, I'm trying to think of like ways in which I do disengage. I think that's like, I, I like going out with my friends. I like like going and being with people. I think that's also a way that I disengage. That's not necessarily media consumption or like art consumption. But I mean, being with people and they conversation in itself is like taking time for yourself, which I think is really obviously valid. Um, and I mean, you brought it up. I'm glad like it's the elephant in the room that should be talked about, which is a, we're in this time period right now where theater isn't happening. The, this pandemic is not only closing down theater, but obviously affecting globally people's lives in huge ways. And we are in the midst um, of this movement that should have been happening and should have been more present for a long time, but yeah, addressing systemic racism and addressing brutality and like inequalities in a way that is really important. And I'm hearing what you're saying about wanting to stay engaged with that. And so I'm wondering, is there an aspect of the kind of heightened importance of the time we're in right now, right, this actual present moment that makes the idea of disengagement feel almost not just unattractive, but also like we can't afford to do that. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I remember being totally overwhelmed and I was like in Michigan at my parents' home, like totally understanding, not, not, no, that's not the right word. I was not understanding of everything that black people have been through because I've never gone through it. But like, there was just overwhelming, like this overwhelming sense of like everyone posted on Instagram, everyone posted on Facebook, da, da, da. But the, the feeling that you had to stay engaged and that you had to stay engaged because this was an extremely important conversation. And then the, um, the, 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 the petition came out, not, not petitions, it wasn't a petition, it was like a call from the BIPOC uh, theater makers called um, We See a White American Theater came out, which was like a, that stood on the shoulders of August Wilson at the ground, which I stand. And I was reading the Ann Bogart interviews and I was like feeling that I needed to be a part of a conversation. Like the American theater was going to change and that I needed to stay engaged and I needed to stay on top of all the things that people were posting and, and saying and I needed to read everything. I needed to be like fully, fully there. And I wanted to bring in people that I could talk to this, talk about. And so that's why I like emailed all those people that I just said um, so that we could have those conversations. And then we could like, I really do have this strong feeling that the young people are the future of America and are the future of the American theater specifically. And all those people back in the 60s and 70s were in their 20s and 30s when they were making off-Broadway theaters and, and their small theater companies um, downtown and these collectives of actors and things like that. And so I'm like looking to that model a bit for how to reinvigorate or reinvent American theater. Um, and and it's, we've been doing it for like three weeks now. And it's like every single conversation is so exciting. Every single conversation is so relevant to everything that is happening right now. And we're like, really trying to think through how to make it socially distant. We're trying to make it, we're trying to think about how to make it, you know, inclusive and to, to have voices that are not normally heard in a way that that dear white American theater um, pointed out. And so it's like, obviously there are going to be like institutional changes and I don't think that institutions are going to go away, but I also think that there's other ways to make theater and that there's other ways to engage in theatrical practice that aren't necessarily in a proscenium house with the box office and the and the the traditional theatrical rules that like the audience member follows or even the creators follow or anything like that 
all that to say that it's a very important to stay engaged and that I felt that like I had to stay engaged because everything is changing because I want to have a voice in how things are going to change and how it's going to look when we're on the other side of this. Even though I don't think that that phrase is like accurate, I don't think there's like an other side. I think there's like a constant morphine and constant change that is going to lead us to a place that is probably going to be different than what, what it was quote unquote before. But I don't know if there's going to be like a recognizable before and after. I don't know if we're ever going to know like when the after actually happens or has settled. You know what I mean? I think it's always going to be a conversation that is always going to be, that is going to require everyone to always be engaged. Now that you've been really spending a lot of time with this new creative endeavor, which, uh, does it have a name? Do you guys have a name for the project? No, it's just called Untitled Project right now. <laughs> hey, that's cool. I think that's awesome. Um, has it changed the way you see yourself as a creator and the kind of creator you want to be? I think so, yeah. It's also about my year at NYU, too. Because they ask you to think like a director. They ask you to think like about, they ask you to think about the whole production. They ask you to think about the the show from point A to point Z and like what happens in between, what happens when the audience walks in, what happens when the audience leaves. Like there's like an entire experience that you were thinking about. And so what I thought of scene design before this, you know, was like design the wall and what it looks like. And I don't think that's what scene designers do. And I don't think that's what, theater makers in general do. Like, I don't think that any one person should stay in their lane, quote unquote. I don't think that costume designers should just have an opinion about the costumes. I think that costume designers have an opinion about the set and the lighting and the, that way the actor's standing and da, 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 da. Like we are all truly collaborators in this um, endeavor and that we need to, you know, hold each other to a standard. And so when I brought together, it's mostly directors and designers there, there aren't really any actors that are engaged, which is kind of a difference between some of the things that were happening in the 70s. Um, um, and I just want everyone to be able to like have the voice and know that their ideas are valid and that they shouldn't just have like one lane and they shouldn't just have one kind of skill set because I think that going into the future, we're all going to have to have opinions and do better and be better and engage in these conversations. You know, like the conversations about structural change shouldn't just be happening in like the artistic director's board of directors offices in my opinion it's like they need to really happen with the creators and the people who are making the work and who are on the ground actually like actively telling stories and trying to engage with stories that are non-white and non-traditional i mean that's a whole conversation about like what is traditional and like the canon and like how we've pillarized and centralized white stories and how that has then everything else is different than. But all that to say that that I think that a lot of why I brought these people together and, 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 and why I strive to continually have these conversations is because I want to improve myself and I want to like improve my storytelling and I want to like broaden my horizons and I want to be able to listen and to engage and to have ideas and to to like be able to have intelligent conversations with people who run companies right now and who are who have the power in our industry and hopefully like change things in some way, somehow. Again, I lost the question in there, but <laughs> no, I think what I think that it's a hugely important conversation to have. Um, thank you guys for putting that together. I would love if you guys have, I don't know if you guys have any sort of site or any kind of social media thing going on yet, but if you do, just let me know and we can make sure to put that in as well to let people know. I think that 
there is no talking too long about this stuff, right? We could we could talk for so many hours about this, and I would want to bring more people in, right? I, I think that this would be, this is a conversation that needs to include so many people. But I think one thing that I really picked out from what you said is that the people who maybe feel like they don't have the power, like who aren't the artistic directors and who aren't the board of directors or whoever it is, they still do have a power in what they say and what they create and what they endorse, right? And so what I find really inspiring is the fact that you guys are taking your creative abilities and pushing to use that in a way that amplifies not just your voices, but the voices of other people um, in a significant way. And so thank you guys for doing that. Would it be okay with you to move on to one last thing? Is that all right? Sure. Yeah. And I think you you did bring it up a little earlier when you were talking about seeing posts on Facebook or Instagram and those kind of things. Um, and one thing that I, I do enjoy talking with people about who are creators is their interaction with social media and how they either use it in a creative way as a professional tool. Like, what does your relationship with social media look like? I think, well, my Instagram is very, like, tailored to my creative work. Not tailored, but, like, I don't post pictures of myself. I only post pictures of my work or of things that I see out in the world that I think are beautiful. Um, So I guess my Instagram is kind of precise in that way. I don't engage on Facebook a lot. And when you had asked the question earlier about um, what do you do to disengage, I think one of the things is social media actually is like through scrolling and like I'm eating dinner or something and I'm like scrolling through Instagram or even TikTok is now the bane of my existence <laughs> because I'm on it so much and it's so bad. Um, but that's also a way to like for me to disengage. And I'm not saying that like the work is creative on there, but sometimes it is. I stumbled across this great artist. I don't know like his name or anything, but he like creates these oil pastel drawings and then like co- like has like a commentary over them that is absolutely incredible. It's like so sassy and so funny, and the artwork is so beautiful. And there's just like this like combination of personality and art that I just it was so good. But I wonder. Huh, I wonder if the question is also about like, do you use social media for like professional things? Maybe. I, I, I mean, I just wanted you to take it how you would take it. So that's fine. I know that some people feel like there's a pressure nowadays mm-hmm. to use social media to promote themselves, right? That there's this expectation, especially in creative industries, that if you're not out there on social media, who even cares, right? And I know that's vastly oversimplifying mm-hmm. it, but it feels like to some people I've talked to that that's the pressure that they have to represent themselves and show their creative work or else it could limit opportunities for them, right? And so is that something that you feel like as a designer that there's that pressure to put your work out there on those platforms for people to see? Yeah, I think so. I definitely don't use it as much as like, like for example, Jason Sherwood is someone who like uses social media. Like he like, he has somehow cracked some formula about using social media to gain notoriety and get him like more um, opportunities to, to design more shows. And I don't think that I'm on that level. And I don't think that everyone needs to be like your friends on social media know you and are your friends because they like the work you do and they like you as a person. And so like, there's nothing to prove to them per se by posting another picture of the model that you did last year. Um, And not to say that it's like not important to have your work on there or a way for people to see your work in an accessible way. 
sometimes I feel like it's more of the connections that you get with people in real life more than through social media. Do you ever find social media discouraging in certain ways? Like you mentioned Jason, well, I, I, don't, I don't know him, but I mean, if you see somebody like that, right, who's able to leverage his presence, right, to mm -hmm. get opportunities, is that something that makes you feel like, oh, I should be doing that? Or it makes you feel like, oh, why isn't that happening to me? Is there a discouragement that comes with that? Yeah, I think so. I definitely felt that way looking through his Instagram. And I know that there are designers who do focus heavily on their social media and they see their social media as like a, another part of their job almost, that it's like keeping up with it. Um, and I think I, I tried for a while, like on my Instagram, I try to do like one post of like my work and then one post of like a, a picture that I took out in the world and then another of my work and then another picture. So I have like that little like grid pattern thing. But I never feel the like pressure to post something. And I never feel like when I do post something, <laughs> it's like getting me more followers or is getting me a job or anything. Like, it's also just about me sharing like my creativity with the people around me um, who I don't like text every day. And so it's kind of like a way for me to also show people what I'm doing. I know that my family likes to see it. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. If there's one thing I know, it's that my my mom is like my social media outlet where she's like, yeah. I didn't know you were at this and this place. If you had put a picture, it's like, yep, Sasha, Sasha knows what she's doing. She does. <laughs> so I guess one last thing. So you are a, you're a designer. You work in a creative field, right? And it's something at the very beginning of this we were talking about. It's something you've gotten to do from a very young age when it was like this passion of yours right you were doing it in high school you kind of got to do that the hairspray right whatever those projects were they were like you're really mostly from a passion point and then you made that choice to pursue it as a career and that's now your profession um and i think that point that people reach who are creators who start something as a passion and then it develops into their product essentially right that's a really interesting transition and so i'm always curious and i'll put it to you has that felt like it's diminished your passion for it at all or has it changed the passion that you have for design now that you've decided to make it your job i don't think the passion has changed i think it's it's shifted like i was just talking to someone the other day and especially like this new theater endeavor that i'm doing it's like when i started college and studying scenic design it was like i'm gonna design sets and i'm gonna be on broadway and i'm gonna like do the thing and then i like actually got to new york <laughs> like actually came here and actually started working and it was like that's not the end all be all of theater by any means and that is not i don't think the pinnacle of theater either um my humble opinion that broadway is definitely not the most quality work that exists in the world um and so i think that like my desire to be like on broadway or to have a broadway show has definitely fall into the wayside of it and that's not to say that my passion isn't still there it's just like shifted to work working on things that i'm actually passionate about about the story and about the the people that i'm working with and about the um play and so those things have become more important to me than a big budget and notoriety and fame or things like that so I think that I still have a lot of passion for what I do and I feel like there's still so much out in the world that I can do. And it's always about finding that next thing that I can like really dig my teeth into 
and the people that I really want to work with and be friends with. And there's always more out there. And I'm learning it. And like being at NYU, it's like broadened my, I hate the word network, but like the people that I know and like my network more and more and more. And so like, I still hold on to all the connections that I've made throughout my entire life. But now I keep like adding more and more incredible people that I get to work with and that I get to, to like I was saying earlier, like shape American theater with. And I think that's like really exciting. Well, whatever that next thing is in like this untitled project, all the things that come after that, I'm very excited to see them. Um, Anton, before we wrap up, anything to plug? Like, your, do you want to plug your website or social media or anything? We can make sure to put that in the show notes. They can follow me on. Oh my God, I don't even know. Let me look. Because <laughs> I don't even know my own Instagram handle. I think it's. See, I, I never remember there was a period or not. Okay, it, it, there's no period. It's just. Okay. It's at Anton V O L O V. At Anton V O L O V. Perfect. We will put that in there. As soon as we have more info about that untitled project, I will absolutely make sure we follow up on that too. I'll let you know. Um, I'm excited. But Anton, really, thank you so much for, for taking the time, for answering all those questions. And um, yeah. Of course. It was great. It was good. It was good to be here. It was nice to talk to you. I know, right? That The ending is always the hard part. It's like, well, now it feels formal again, <laughs> right? Now we're talking about something fancy. I got to sit up straight. <laughs> exactly. I hope you guys liked that one. Like I mentioned in the middle of the show, we're going to have show notes with links to the things that Anton was mentioning, such as the ground on which I stand and for We See You White American Theater. And additionally, we'll have links to Anton's work and his website and also to the website and links for New Phase Collective, as well as information on how to get tickets for that show this Friday and Saturday. Definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, as always, you can send us feedback for the show at uh, creativeconsumptionpodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can always, um, honestly, just by subscribing in whatever your podcast player is. That's a huge help. You can visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash creativeconsumption. Um, or you can just check out our social media and look for, look for upcoming episodes. Speaking of which, we're going to have another one out next Monday. So... Uh, looking forward to that one and we will have a little a little teaser clip like we did this week um, letting you know who that's going to be with and uh, yeah we're looking forward to that last thing thank you as always to the show's intrepid co-creator social media manager theme writer and all-around mental sanity support nathan schwartzberg and until next week thank you guys again for listening stay safe and be well 